This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. To pull back the curtain today, we've already recorded two segments of this show, and I can tell you it's going to be a good one. <laughs> we can actually say that. I can already tell you it's yeah. going to be a good one. We'll, we'll hold out hope for the first segment, though. <laughs> we make no guarantees about three strikes. Yeah. But we know coming up, at least two good segments await. And when we record the close, maybe that's going to be great. So it might be two good and one great segment. And there we go. Let's, we'll see. Fingers crossed as a, to our own performance <laughs> on this year podcast. So, hey, welcome inside. It's uh, the latest edition of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. My name is Tyler Mon. His name is Sam Dykstra. Uh, episode number 193, which uh, Sam's note in the um, subject line of the email today is PS 193 in Brooklyn, public school 193, is called the Gil Hodges School. That's I great. thought that was a very good fact for this one. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, not only that, but there is a there's a Jackie Robinson school right next to the former site of Ebbets Field in Brooklyn as well. That's a public school, I believe, if I remember correctly. Is maybe, it? Maybe I made that up. I used to live in that neighborhood, but I did not know that. I knew of the public school. It might be called the Jackie Robinson School, and I didn't pay attention. Robinson, it's very possible. PS375, it looks like, according to a quick The Google. Okay. Um, I know there's at least a mural there on the side of the building that's like right near Ebbetsfield Towers. Oh, yeah. So, no, that's. Uh, yeah. No, that's no, actually. It is. Uh, it is. Yes. Yes. yes I is. didn't make it up. Whew. No, you're true. And uh, literally, that was about a. 10-minute walk from Jeez, where I Sam. I'm on. sorry a childless person did not know much about the public school. <laughs> Get some better understanding of the public school system around your neighborhood while not having kids. Yes, Come I know. On. Do your job. Well, it's only a 10-minute drive away from me now, I guess. So okay. maybe, maybe this weekend I'll have to take a drive by just to say I've seen it. <laughs> So uh, welcome into this week's episode. Coming up in a little bit, we are going to catch up with the 12th-ranked prospect in the Atlanta Braves organization. Pitcher Kyle Muller will join us from Seattle, where he was taking part in uh, some work at Driveline Baseball. Very cool stuff. Um, We'll get an insight into what the Driveline world is like. Um, And it was really fun getting a chance to talk with Kyle. And uh, you can get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com, wherever you found us. Thanks for tuning in. We're on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and everywhere else. And uh, give us a rating and a review in a subscription and tell us how much you like our uh, Kyle Muller interviews and our nonsensical um, segues into talking about things like uh, New York City public school names. It's, uh, <laughs> you only get this kind of content here. Uh, that much we can guarantee. <laughs> so with that, let's get into three strikes for this week's episode of the show. Uh, Major League Baseball announced its Hall of Fame class this week, which included... Edgar Martinez, designated hitter, formerly the Seattle Mariners. Mike Mussina, starting pitcher, formerly the Baltimore Orioles and the New York Yankees, who said, by the way, he will not be representing either in the Hall of Fame, which I find interesting. Well, uh, Mariano he did, Rivera. He hasn't announced that yet, has he? Yeah, I thought I saw the other day that there was a headline. Roy, Roy Halladay will not be representing I either. I thought I saw the same about Mussina. Maybe I dreamed this. Mussina said yesterday at the press conference that he hasn't chosen yet. Oh. He's still up in the air about which one he's going to wear. He's... Um, 
He's open to both possibilities, and he's going to talk to the Hall of Fame about it. But everybody was hoping hoping he would have an announcement yesterday, and he jokingly just said no. He doesn't have huh. an announcement. Where did I see that? Maybe I made I it up. Know, I knew but... that that was the case with uh, with Roy Halladay, um, the late Roy Halladay. Who, that actually kind of surprises me about Halladay because he spent the vast majority of his career in Toronto and, granted, had some unbelievable moments as a member of the, the Philadelphia Phillies, threw a no-hitter in the playoffs, yada, yada. Um, but I thought that, uh, that he would go in uh, as a Blue Jay. Uh, Mariano Rivera, I don't know who he's going to go in with. <laughs> who, who could possibly guess? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe um, – Maybe an Arizona Diamondback. Could be. Oh, too soon, say Yankee fans. Yes, I'm from 18 sure. years ago. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's get started. Those Hall of Famers named this week. And yesterday, Sam got a chance to uh, hang out at the press conference in which they discussed their their minor league days. And uh, obviously, that was one topic among many with the introductory press conference for the uh, the three um, living elected Hall of Famers. And uh, that's always a cool thing every year when you get a chance to do that. What was this year like? Yeah, this one was really cool. Um, the The reason they discussed their minor league careers during the press conference itself, for anybody who got to watch on MLB Network, uh, was because a question was asked by our friend Kelsey Hennigan. Um, she was there as well. She wrote up a story on the site about this. I'm actually going to go a little deeper for Toolshed this week on Mike Mussina. Um, but what really sticks out to me about this class and this came across in their answers is just the different routes these guys had. I mean, every year we we go through this with the Hall of Fame class and, you know, we think about it in terms of there's got to be only one route. You know, you, if you're talented enough to get into the Hall of Fame, which is like what, 1% of all Major League Baseball players of all time, you would think your, your talent would shine through in the minor leagues. You, you're more likely to be a top prospect. Um, top prospects are more likely to be Hall of Famers, vice versa. What this class points out is that's not exactly true at all. Um, Edgar Martinez was, you know, kind of a failed third baseman. He hit basically everywhere. Um, he at one point looked like maybe even a quad A player, and he talked about that a little bit yesterday. You know, he was at Triple A Calgary for a couple of years going up and down between Seattle and Calgary, hitting very well at Calgary, but as a third baseman, never really showing the good defense to, to make that happen. Um, luckily, the, the Mariners end up deciding to move him third base one year full-time. They eventually make him the DH, and now he's in the conversation for best DH of all time, um, but was never really a top 100 prospect, or at least had the look of it. Uh, Mariano Rivera, the story is pretty well told at this point, but you know, signed out of Panama at a relatively late age for Latin American prospects. We talk now about guys signing when they were 16. Mariano Rivera signed for or signed much later than that. Uh, started out his career as a starting pitcher. Uh, had a major elbow injury that required surgery. Although I don't think it was Tommy John that he got when he was at the lower levels. Um, eventually makes it to the majors as a starter. Seems like a failed starter. Becomes a reliever becomes the greatest closer of all time, and there's no real debate on that one, becomes the first unanimous Hall of Famer of all time. Uh, so the, the idea that you just need to be a top prospect in order to have a long and prosperous career kind of gets destroyed by those two guys. That being said, Mike Mussina was a, somebody who we think of as being a top prospect. I think at one point he was ranked number 19 uh, going into the no 1991 season by Baseball America, uh, which was really the only prospect ranking or the only major prospect ranking in the game at that point. Uh, Mussina was a first-round pick. 
made it all the way to AAA in his first year, and I'm talking about in his draft year. Uh, ended up winning a Governor's Cup with Rochester that first year, went back to Rochester 91, ended the season in Baltimore, never really saw the minor leagues again. Uh, it, so the idea of, um, you know, there's only one way to Cooperstown. That's very much not true, proven out here. And also, not only that, Roy Halladay was a prospect at one, at one point. But even he uh, got sent all the way down to Class A advanced to Needham at one point in his career after a couple major league seasons. Yeah. And, and Kelsey writes about this. You know, she talked to uh, his wife, who was there, about what that time was like in, in Roy's life, um, getting sent down to work on its delivery. And they also helped him work out some mental issues, maybe about pitching in the major leagues. A couple of years later, he's a Cy Young winner. Um, so that's what I really like about this class in general is it's obviously a very diverse class. You've got, uh, you know, two guys from who, who came up through the draft, one from Puerto Rico, uh, one from Panama. Um, and, and you get just a breadth of different stories. Uh, Mariano Rivera got very personal yesterday in sharing a story about, you know, when he first came up and he was at Class A Greensboro, he would cry himself to sleep because he knew on the baseball diamond everybody speaks baseball. Everybody generally knows how to communicate with each other. I'm going to be positioned over here. One means fastball, two means curveball, whatever. Um, you can usually understand that. But in the clubhouse, if you're not speaking English – especially when he was coming up through the ranks late 80s, early 90s, it can be really tough on these young players. That still exists now. I mean, there's a big movement now in the game to have Spanish-speaking coaches on every minor league roster. Um, but for some of these guys who are coming in much younger than Mo was when he came in, it's really difficult. So, you know, to to remember that and see what's still possible uh, and to see what these guys – put up with uh at the at the lower levels was really cool and really striking and um uh, it, it was nice to hear them be so forthcoming yesterday about what those first uh couple of years were like mike mucina shared a story about the first time he went on a minor league road trip his luggage got ran over um you know the, <laughs> even as a first round pick he still rode the bus still did everything else like a every other minor leaguer so uh, it's important to keep that kind of stuff in perspective. And I always enjoy going to this every year, and this year was no different. It is some good stuff. Uh, Kelsey's story up on the site right now uh, has some really great anecdotes in, in it as well. Um, I have absolutely no idea where I got uh, that Mike Messina had. I swear I got a push notification that said this. It's more than likely that I read something incorrectly because I'm um, – What's the word? Dumb. Uh, but uh, I apologize, Mike Mussina. It's also kind of funny if you just search Twitter now, Mike Mussina, Orioles, Yankees. There is a flame war going on as to see who uh, who Mike Mussina is going to go in as. Um, just have a blank cap. <laughs> Don't choose a side. I think it's yeah. funnier to make these people yell at each other for all of eternity now. <laughs> Nobody if ever Greg yells over the Hall of Fame, in. though, as we've learned. Yeah, if Greg Maddox can go in with a blank cap when yeah. I think we all think of him as an Atlanta Brave. Yeah. Mike Mussina. That is pretty crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I get it. Like, you started your career with the Cubs. You, he went back to the Cubs. Um, spent a lot of good years there. I, I get that. Mike Mussina, he, he even talked about this yesterday. Uh, the Orioles are the team that drafted him not once but twice. Uh, that's where they – yeah, he started his career. They put in a lot of work with him to become a, an eventual Hall of Famer. And some of that will come through in the piece in which I talked to his Rochester pitching coach. Um, and then you sign with the Yankees who gave you a lot of money and, you know, got you as close to a World Series title as you ever were going to get. Um, I get that. So, you know, it, it it's not an easy decision, but hey, 
if you're making a decision about your Hall of Fame cap, that means a lot went right, right for you. Um, so that's a pretty envious position anyway. Um, there was one tweet that I saw in which a, a fan said, why does Mike Mussina have to decide if he wants to represent both teams, let him represent both teams, which popped into my head the idea of making – uh, you know, you see those like Franken jerseys every once in a while where it's like a jersey cut in half and sewn with another jersey cut in half. Just make a, ca- a plaque that has a cap with half of that terrible Orioles bird logo and a half an NY on the other side. That wouldn't be weird at all. No, no, that would be very aesthetically okay. pleasing. Super normal. Just make two uh, plaques and pre- have a button. If you're a Baltimore fan, you can press the button <laughs> and it flips over to the Baltimore side. It flips back and forth. Yeah. That actually would be uh, very interesting. Every day you could have a you could have a like a vote tabulation of who came by to uh, choose Mike Mussina's cap logo. We're putting way too much thought into this. Strike two this week. The uh, Prospect Projection series continues from Toolshed, written by one Samuel C. Dykstra. And uh, this week, it's a National League Central. Uh, take us through it. Who's going to star from the NL Central, Sam? Yeah, I, I, looking at the NL Central from a major league standpoint this year, I, I think it's going to surprise people, at least the way things look right now, uh, how open the NL Central is going to be. Um, you know, we're coming off a year in which the Brewers were good and the, the Cubs are good and the Cardinals were good. Um, uh, Pirates and uh, Reds a little bit less so. But the Reds have been probably the most aggressive team this offseason. I mean, the the some of the trades they've made are, are guys on one-year deals. I'm looking at Yasiel Puig and Matt Kemp and Alex Wood. Uh you know, so it's kind of exciting to see the Reds pour some resources into this and make some big deals. And when we're looking at that in terms of prospect projections, uh, that works really well with the idea that Nick Senzel, the top prospect in the Red system uh, and a top 10 overall prospect himself, uh, is basically major league ready. I mean, he's coming off a year in which it was kind of disappointing. We all thought he would be in the majors last year, uh, but dealt with some injuries it, and not just injuries, but kind of health concerns. He had some bouts with vertigo at, at times that held him out. Um, he also tore a tendon in his right index finger, and that required surgery. Uh, he ended, They wanted to put him in the Arizona Fall League. He ended up getting another procedure in October that removed bone spurs from his left elbow. Um, so it just seemed like one thing after another. In terms of this being worrisome for his long-term health, it doesn't seem to be a big worry, um, especially the vertigo. That seems like something that could kind of get you scared. But uh, the Reds don't seem worried about it. He didn't seem worried about it. Um, so, you know, even after all of that, the, what he was able to do when he was on the field last year was obviously very good. As I mentioned, top 10 overall prospect. He's actually at number six overall. Uh, he hit 310 with a 378 OBP, a 509 slugging percentage. Uh, everybody expects, expects him to be a plus-plus hitter. That kind of translates very well into these projections uh steamer 600 says if senzel were to get 600 plate appearances next year uh he would hit 275 with a 338 obp and a 444 slugging percentage what does that mean on a major league level well they expect him to be an above average major league hitter right away that's with no extra time at triple a louisville uh he would be expected to be a 109 wrc plus uh, to kind of put that into context a little bit, that would be seventh highest among rookie eligible players next year if they were all to get 600 plate appearances. Uh, and it's actually difficult to be above average uh, as you know a rookie eligible hitter right away in the major leagues. I only counted 15 you know, 
rookie eligible players uh, who had a WRC plus of 100 or above. Um, most of the names you know, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Eloy Jimenez, and Nate Lowe, and Peter Alonso are the top four in that category. Number five is Kristen Stewart, uh, who actually has major league time on, on his resume already. Um, so it's really difficult for even a projection system to think that a player is going to be an above average hitter right away. Senzo plugs himself really well into that. Uh, they also expect him to hit 17 homers and add 14 stolen bases. Um, so a good mix of power and speed for him there. That would work out to a 2.7 war, um, which would obviously help out the Reds quite a bit there. Uh, I think that's like about fourth in terms of all Reds players in terms of war projection. Um, you know, behind guys like Joey Votto and Henio Suarez. Uh, the big question for me for Senzel going into this year, and I still don't think the Reds fully know how this is going to work out either, is where are they going to put him defensively? Uh, he got a lot of time at second base last year. They drafted him as a third baseman. Anytime you talk to anybody from the Reds system uh, and you ask him about what he can do defensively they always like to bring up well you know he's played shortstop in the past um is he going to be a shortstop at the major league level i wouldn't quite put that on him but he does have a good arm he's got like i said some good speed so he's got the range to make it happen uh the thing i would like to see from him is get some time in center field uh the reds non-tendered billy hamilton this this offseason and that at the time seemed like a bit of a head scratcher hamilton's one of the per- premier defensive center fielders in the game obviously one of the fastest if not the fastest player in major league baseball right now uh can't hit for much at all so that kind of hurts his value and made non-tendering him a possibility but you know he's somebody who brings value to the baseball field every day uh letting him go and not having a ready-made replacement right now it's maybe scott shebler who's could be their starting opening day center fielder which he's good but not something on which a division winner is built, I would say. Um, so if Senzel can go into this spring and get some time in center field or any of the outfield spots and, and maybe win one of those or show that he's ready enough, you know, after a couple weeks at Louisville, uh, once service time concerns are kind of by the wayside, uh, that'll be really interesting. He said before he underwent the elbow uh, surgery in the fall that he was going to go to the AFL and working on the outfield was going to be uh, an explicit ex- instruction for him out there. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised to see that continue this spring. He's probably not going to be third base just because the Reds like Suarez so much and, and for good reason. Uh, but maybe second base is a possibility. Maybe they give him second base and center field. What's clear is that Nick Senzel is ready to hit the major leagues from an offensive point of view. Um, You know, he's incredibly rare when it comes to rookies. Uh, He stood out by far amongst any other NL Central uh, prospect I wrote about here. Keston Hira may have been somebody else who could have led this column as somebody. uh, You know, the the Brewers have an opening at second base. Uh, Hira should open up in the the upper minors, double A, if not triple A this year. It's very clear that the Brewers are going for it coming off, you know, their playoff run last year. they want him to be their second baseman at some point in 2019. The projections quite aren't there for him just yet, and I think that's because he ended at Double A last year. Uh, they only expect him to be an 86 WRC plus hitter with a 1.2 WAR. Not good enough to say like he should be in the major leagues right now, um, but that's a foundation on which Hira can build for sure. Um, but when it comes to prospects from the NL Central in 2019, uh, Senzel is clear in a way uh, the biggest to watch and I'll be keeping a very close eye on what they do with him defensively uh, this year in the Cactus League so there you go Central fans Um, 
the uh, it's prospect projections sort of series always gets me so excited because it means we're we're finally getting there. Even though like some of these guys we won't see for any plate appearances in the majors, is still like what could that guy do with six hundred plate appearances? Right. Well, that's that's my favorite thing about it too. Is uh, I've had this discussion with editors before of like, oh, do we need to throw in this guy? It's very clear that he's not going to be worth anything in the major leagues this year. And it's just because I want to be ahead of the curve in turn in terms of, you know, who? How many times do we get tweets? Call him up, you know. Taylor Trammell does. Mup. Yeah, is the Mup future game MVP uh, last year, and he spent the entire year at Class A Advanced Daytona. Good player, very exciting tool package. Uh, was only at High A, and after he wins Futures Game MVP, performs in Major League Park, everybody wants to say, "Hey, he should be in the majors right now." Let's just put him into the, the steamer matrix and just show that right now the projections would have him be replo- below replacement level. Here's something we can actually point to. Um, so even if guys aren't, you know, Nick, the Nick Senzels of the world, or even if your organization doesn't, it doesn't look like there's many major league get ready guys right now. Um, you know, at least you can look at it and say, like, okay, maybe they should be making free agent moves. Maybe they should be making trades uh, to allow these guys to develop a little bit more. Um, so that that does matter for something, even if it's not the top of the list we're always talking about. Uh, those guys at the bottom list can give you an idea of where your system is as a whole as well. Strike three this week, Sam. It's yeah, that's something I wrote. Yeah, I was going to say strike three. I feel like I'm supposed to be the one to throw this back to you. And if I was anything of a co-host i would have done that naturally that's a strike <laughs> too but uh you're a much better driver of this train than i am uh tyler you wrote a story this week that was basically like ready made for you because you've seen these guys in this capacity uh for sure and i don't think anybody could have written this story as as well as you did uh from the perspective that you did but uh you wrote a story about how team usa 2017 uh is starting to really come into their own in, in pro ball uh, coming off last year's draft. Um, you know, what, what stood out to you in this story and reporting this story and what are your, some of your memories even from that team USA team in uh, 2017? Well, yeah, it's pretty amazing. The uh, we're talking about the, the U 18 team um, USA baseball refers to it as 18 U, but internationally it's the, uh, the U 18 squads, which competed in the, uh, the U 18 baseball world cup in Thunder Bay, Ontario in 2017. It was a 20 player roster. And of those 20 players, 19 were draft eligible. There was an infielder named Carter Young, who was the only uh, high school junior on that team. He'll be draft eligible coming up in 2019. Of those 19, 17 were drafted. 10 went in the first round. So 20 players on the roster, half of them were first-round picks. And I have to issue uh, not an apology, but an acknowledgement to uh, Arizona Diamondbacks prospect Alec Thomas, who responded to the MILB.com tweet and said, how can you just forget about me and Raynell Delgado? Well, Alec Thomas was a second-round pick. Raynell Delgado was a sixth-round pick uh, in the Cleveland system. So sorry, there's only so many stars we can talk about on this team, <laughs> and you guys had to be cut out. I apologize. Um, but it's uh, that team was just ridiculous, and they um, combined through nine uh, tournament games of the World Cup and four exhibition games, two of which were, again, uh, were against a, a powerhouse JUCO program in Iowa Western. Um, that team went undefeated. They allowed five runs in the entirety of the U18 Baseball World Cup, which is a nine-game tournament. Five runs, three of them were earned. Um, the staff was ridiculous on the pitching side uh the offense it's kind of funny when you talk to 
really everybody that I talked to um, for this story about that team and about the offense, um, including somebody like Nolan Gorman, who was a first-round pick of the St. Louis Cardinals and is now the second-ranked prospect in that organization, all they can talk about is the pitching staff and the defense. The one guy who talked about the offense was the pitcher that I interviewed, and that's Ryan Weathers, who was a first-round pick in the San Diego Padres organization and is now a, a top 100 pick or a top 100 prospect according to to MLB pipeline and he said like yeah once I realized like these guys are going to score a bunch of runs that takes a lot of pressure off of you as a pitcher um, but really it was the pitching staff and the defense that kind of carried that team and it just the the international baseball um, landscape is so fascinating especially from the USA baseball side because all of these guys not eligible to be drafted until they get to the end of their high school careers so you can really form one of the elitist collections of talent in baseball at that level and kind of that level alone because these guys are all on that verge of either being professional players or being big time division one players um, and you can jam them all onto a 20-man roster a couple of these guys made the comment if we would have formed two teams, if we would have formed a team out of the guys who didn't make the final 20-man roster, that team might have been able to win a world championship at a World Cup as well. Um, and it was just a, a really fascinating group of guys who, um, you know, you just remember the way – and, yeah, I, I broadcasted those games uh, for the World Baseball Softball Confederation, and it's just incredible to see a collection of talent like that um, all in one place, all playing – you know, on a, a stage that's so different from even the the travel ball circuit or the showcase circuit or you know, perfect game or uh, the the all American games, all those types of things. Those are interesting. But when you put things on an international map and you've got the USA Baseball logo across the front of your jersey and you're competing against other countries, it takes on an entirely different gravity. And uh, as many teams as have gone through, the United States has now won four straight. U18 Baseball World Cups. They've won three straight at the U12 level. They just won their first U15 this past summer. They won the World Baseball Classic, obviously, in 2017. Um, what USA Baseball has done, the dominant role that it has been on over the last few years in international baseball, the U18 level is still like above and beyond anything that they've put together. And uh, to have 10 first-rounders out of a 20-team roster is just insane. And it was it was fun to get a chance to talk to those guys. Yeah, and we've had Anthony Siegler on this podcast. We have. From the draft floor. Um, and and you're, uh, you're very right. Like this, this story is kind of just the start. Um, or that World Cup team was just the start of what's going to be very, uh, you know, promising careers for a lot of these guys. And would not be surprised if your story in, you know, however many years is used as like a 30 for 30 based on just how many how much talent was on one field at one time. You talk about 10 first rounders. I mean, that's an entire lineup, including a DH and starting pitcher. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it, yeah. It's insane that that could happen all on one team. So you just really, really cool it. story. And we'll be following these guys, obviously, for years to come, uh, whether it was it's minors or minors. Or, uh, majors yeah. or minors. It was really cool. And uh, if you're a, a team who landed one of these dudes, um, unless you're the New York Mets who already gave up the, the highest level, drafted one of them all, <laughs> um, an outfielder, Jerry Kellenick, uh, so be excited for the Seattle Mariners. Um, but be really pumped about these guys because the experience that they have, the talent level that they bring, um, the maturity, the professionalism, uh, that was one thing Ryan Weathers talked about. And Ryan Weathers is a guy who's a, a son of a former big leaguer. His father, David Weathers, won World Series titles and, and pitched in the big leagues for a while. And 
Ryan said that was the thing that he appreciated most about USA Baseball was they they kind of teach you how to be a professional in terms of the decisions you make away from the field, how you carry yourself um, as a pro. And I thought that was really interesting stuff as well. Uh, there was a quote that I didn't get to put in the story. Uh, I ended up with a way too long story and a huge thanks to Josh Jackson, as always, for for helping me cut it down to something manageable. Um, but there was a quote from uh, from Ryan Weathers in which he talked about he went out and think I think through two shutout innings against Japan in a big matchup. Japan at that time was the the number one ranked international program um, according to the the rankings in 2017. USA Baseball took it over after 2017. Uh, but Ryan Weather said, you know, I got back to the hotel after that and just sat down and thought, I can't believe I just did that. Like I'm a I'm a kid from a little town, Loretto, Tennessee, that nobody's ever heard of, and I just went out and shoved against the number one team in the world, um, and that's pretty amazing. And for so many of these guys, you come together from across the country. You're together for you know a month or, or a few weeks past that and get to have this experience and and go out and win a world championship together it's it's pretty amazing stuff and I think sometimes we all get so jaded by the the level the highest level of professional athletics and oh it's the Olympics and sure this team won a gold medal but look at them they're all professionals they're going to go back to making millions of dollars and they don't care that doesn't exist at the the lower uh the youth levels you can still have sort of that miracle on ice feel not necessarily with a team like this because they were kind of a dream team but you have that feel of like these guys are up there on a podium crying and singing their national anthem their their families are taking videos from the stands they're running around the field with flags draped across their backs like it's pretty cool stuff, and uh, and I had a lot of fun putting that story together. And big thanks to all those guys for uh, for talking with me, Ryan Weathers and uh, and Nolan Gorman from the player side. Um, also, Matt Blood, who was the national team director for that team and is now the director of player development with the Texas Rangers organization. So if you're a Rangers fan, uh, you've added a good one there as well. Um, and uh, we're going to add a foul ball to this week's episode of the show before the show. Cincinnati Reds involved in a trade for Sonny Gray. They are in the process of acquiring – a lot of people with the last name Gray, it appears like, over this <laughs> offseason. So they bring in Sonny Gray as the latest Gray addition. Um, shed Long out the other way in the trade. Yeah, <clears throat> so this was something that was rumored to be happening over the last weekend, basically. Uh, the Yankees, is well-known, were looking to trade Sonny Gray in the last year of his deal. Um, rumors start percolating that it was the Cincinnati Reds that wanted to pick him up. Uh, then it was that they also wanted to sign him to an extension. Uh, it kind of made sense because their pitching coach used to work with Sonny Gray at Vanderbilt. Uh, we've talked tons of times on on this program about the pipeline of pitching from Vanderbilt into the major leagues. Um, so there's a kind of a natural fit there. Uh, but we didn't know what was going the other way. It, it took a couple days to become official. And then we kind of found out why. And it wasn't just... Sonny Gray going to the Reds and a player going to the Yankees. Uh, it ended up being a three-way deal, more or less. Um, with I say more or less because it basically is a three-player de- or a three-team deal, but the Yankees announced it as two separate trades for some reason, uh, which kind of befuddles me. But anyway, uh, what ended up happening was Sonny Gray goes to the the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, Shed Long actually goes to the Seattle Mariners. Uh, and going from the Mariners to the Yankees was Josh Towers. Uh, also going uh, to the Reds was Revert San Martin. Uh, looking at this from you know kind of a prospect point of view, Shedlong goes to the Mariners, and the reason why the Yankees I don't think wanted to keep him was because of a 40-man roster crunch. Shedlong is on the 40-man roster. They would have needed to clear space for him. Didn't want to quite do that. So what can they do and flip him for a player who's not on? 
on the 40 man. Uh, Josh Towers is that. He was a second round pick last year out of Louisville. Uh, Long is probably the better prospect right now. Uh, he's always had the chance to be an above average hitter. Showed that a little bit at Double A Pensacola last year. Um, people really think he will pop even more at some point. The biggest question mark with him is his defense. He was drafted as a catcher, uh, he's been used as a second baseman. Everybody I know who's, who's seen him says he puts in a lot of work at second base trying to become a, a decent fielder at that position, uh, which can be very tough as much as we talk about shortstop being a tough position. Second base is still up the middle. Uh, you, you do need some athleticism to play there. Uh, so he's continually working at that, maybe not quite there yet. Uh, what that's going to mean for his future, we'll have to see. Uh, but he, he goes to a Mariners organization that you know he slots in right now as the number eight prospect. They're number one, number two, number three guys were all acquired this offseason. They're trying to rebuild. They can plug shed long right in there um obviously they they might someday have an opening at second base that they didn't have before after this year's robinson cano trade i know d gordon might get a little bit more time there now but who knows shed long could plug in there at some point down the line as well uh josh Stowers going to the yankees uh, um biggest thing for him is his speed tool uh it could be above average i've seen some places say it's it's average and doesn't work great necessarily in center field uh but he stole 20 bases last year in 58 games at class a short season everett uh stole a ton more at louisville during his time there as well so he's got speed to burn on the base pass at the very least uh there are some believers in his power hasn't quite shown up in the college or minor league ranks just yet um but he does have the athleticism at 6'1 200 pounds to maybe grow into some power and add that to his game as well so uh yankees take on a little bit more of a project uh, you know, even if you know, maybe someday he will be the better prospect than Chad Long. At least he's not on the forty man. Chad Long becomes part of the rebuild in Seattle. Might you know work his way to Seattle at some point in twenty nineteen. We'll have to keep an eye out on that. But uh, interesting trade from the minor league side beyond just Sonny Gray has a new home and uh, could be a reclamation project for uh, Cincinnati. Josiah Gray was the other one, by the way, in case you're wondering about all the Gray jokes. Yes. And I think I said acquiring. I should say transactions with because they yeah i was gonna say josiah, josiah gray. gray yeah he went josiah gray to the los angeles dodgers right. they replace one gray with another one and sunny john gray be on the on the lookout perhaps we'll see um so that'll do it for three strikes in an episode and a, uh, a foul ball in this episode of the show before the show next we're headed to the atlanta brave system and uh, a long way from atlanta but we're going to catch up with kyle muller the 12th ranked prospect in that organization about uh, his breakout 2018 and what's to come ahead this season Kyle Muller from Seattle, next. Offseason continues, although we're getting close to pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training all over the place. And uh, one guy who's going to have a long cross-country flight to get down to uh, Atlanta Braves spring training in the Grapefruit League is Kyle Muller, the 12th-ranked prospect in the Atlanta Braves organization who joins the show from Seattle. And we'll talk about why that is the case here in a little bit. Kyle, welcome, man. How's the offseason been? It's been great. Well, first of all, thanks guys for having me. But uh, yeah, the off season's been awesome. It, it was a little bit short because um, of the fall league, but it turned out we ended up winning that. So it was uh, it was definitely worth it. But you know, ready to get back at it with everybody. That's definitely not a bad way to wrap up your fall league. You go down there and you're there for six weeks, and if you get to leave with some hardware, like that's a pretty cool cap to the whole experience, I would imagine. Oh, it was awesome, especially because the way we won was Braxton Davidson hit a a walk-off home run in the bottom of the 10th inning, I think, after we hadn't scored until the ninth inning. So it was it was pretty dramatic, but it was cool to see another teammate kind of 
you know, put the team on his back like that. And then he got hurt in the celebration, correct? Have you talked to him? How's he doing? He's good. He's down there in uh, Orlando right now. He's getting some rehab in, but I, I think he'll be ready to go. Okay, good. That's good to know. That's like the last possible thing you want. Like, oh, it's a dramatic ending to the AFL, and by the way, a dude broke a bone while celebrating his walk-off. But yeah, anyway. yeah, no. So we had, to, we had to make sure we got him off the field safe, and then we kept celebrating, but it was, it was really fun. <laughs> well, Kyle, let's talk about uh, – first, let's go back to last season. Um, Taken with a 44th overall pick in 2016 uh, in the second round out of high school. Uh, you spend your, your debut season in the GCL. 2017, you go to the Appy League. Last year, you're all over the map in a good way in the Braves organization. Class A Rome, Class A Advanced Florida, Double A Mississippi, um, and then the Fall League, obviously, to finish things off. When you look back at last season, you get 25 games um, combined through those three levels, 11-3 and record, a 3.03 ERA. Go off to the Fall League. You've got this long, just frenetic sprint through 2018. Now, haven't had a few months to, to reflect on it. How do, you, how do you kind of define the 2018 season, what that meant for you as a ball player? I mean, it's awesome, especially after kind of the year I had in 2017. It, it, it didn't meet up to a lot of people's standards, and especially mine. But uh, So I went back kind of the off-season remaps and stuff, and then, uh, you know, I knew I had to come into spring training and, and kind of show out a little bit, and I thought I did a pretty good job of that, and then obviously started strong in Rome, which was nice. And then, you know, you, you can't control, you know, when they move you or if they move you, you know, so you just got to kind of do your thing. And fortunately, they – they were pleased enough to, to bump me up two levels, which was, I mean, it was awesome. And, you know, kind of looking back, it's a little bit surreal because based off of how the, the year before went, you know, you didn't know kind of what their plans were. But, you know, them moving me up twice definitely had that or showed me that they still had that confidence in me, and, and it was really encouraging. And then sending me to the Fall League as well, like that was, that was just icing on top of the cake. The offseason going into last year, um, like you said, you come off. I, I noticed one thing that was interesting in the uh, the MLB pipeline write-up about you was in, in 2017, the Braves kind of felt like the way your mechanics had changed a little bit might have been a reason behind uh, a little dip in velocity and wanted to get those things corrected. And going into 2018, obviously, um, the way things went for you, uh, you're, it's due a lot to the, the work you put in to get back on track. The offseason coming out of 2017 and going into last year, what was your biggest emphasis there? So for me, it was – so I had always worked out a lot, and I was – it was always, you know, see how much weight you could lift. And, I mean, that's that's still a part of the program, but I never really focused on on any sort of, like, explosiveness, like speed training. So that was, that was something for me. Like, I was strong, but I couldn't apply force fast. And then – so that's, that, that was the, the training aspect. The mechanics part, um, for me, I was just – I was so domed up because I was trying to think about, okay, my foot needs to be here, my hand needs to be here. You know, like thinking about how it looked when I was throwing rather than getting into athletic positions and just trying to be as explosive as possible. And so that's kind of one of the things that, you know, I, I've done through driveline and, and those types of workouts is to rather than thinking about, you know, how everything's supposed to look, learn like the kinetic chain of transferring energy from my feet all the way out through my hand through ball release. And that's that's something that definitely helped me a bunch. And at what point last year did it feel like that had locked in? Was it being promoted after six starts at Rome? Was it even in the spring? I mean, when did it feel like last year was going to be a, not only just a better year for you, but uh, even a special year just looking at what a pitching prospect should be doing in the minor leagues? Um, I, I'd say for, for me it was in spring training. I mean, going out and, uh, and, and showing well and, and, you know, putting up some good numbers, having my, my good off-speed stuff and, 
that was, that was definitely something encouraging because I got to show them a side of, of me that they've never seen before. And really I hadn't seen before, you know, that was, that was something new to me. So pretty much the whole year, it was just kind of learning how to control it and, and how to, uh, to, to, to further improve on it. And, and when you talk about, um, you know, having to show the Braves, you know, where you were and what you were able to do in the off season, how blunt were they after 2017 with you about their expectations and, um, you know, what they wanted from you going forward? I mean, how serious were those conversations with them? You know, the, we didn't really have any sort of conversation, you know, it was, uh, cause I had made some good steps kind of towards the end of the year. Obviously the numbers don't really show that, but mechanically, and and just mentally, I think that was probably the biggest thing is the the mental toll that 2017 had. Just kind of, you know, having all my draft buddies go up to to Rome, and then me being stuck and extended to work on some stuff. Um, so that was, it was more of a mental grind. But you know, kind of getting through that season, they were like, "Look, go home, take some time off, and then you know, just come back ready to go." And so, you know, I kind of just put that I essentially put that pressure on myself to to show them that the investment they paid for me in, in, 20 sec- in 2016 was worth it, you know, because obviously you don't want to let anybody down. And it's not the season that I had hoped or expected. So, you know, I definitely wanted to go back and, and prove something. And, and when you look at what this Braves organization is, obviously it's all you've ever known since you've gotten drafted, but um, whether it's guys you talk to at, at driveline or what you've seen otherwheres, other places in the, the pros, it seems like the Braves – are willing to get aggressive with you guys when you do prove yourselves at levels. I mean, you know, Kyle Wright pitched at three levels last year. Bryce Wilson did the same thing. Uh, all those guys who made the major leagues last year, they got pushed there because it felt like the organization was more aggressive. Does it feel that way being there, or what does it feel like when they, you do get moved as quickly as you did last year? I mean, I, honestly, I feel like that's the way it should be. I know there's a lot of politics involved and, and you know, payrolls and stuff like that but if there's somebody that's that's proven themselves at a certain level and you know is is doing what you want them to do I feel like you should give them that opportunity and that's something I'm very thankful for that I'm in an organization that does that and and kind of sees it that way because I mean there's obviously our our minor league system and our big league system is is very loaded with pitchers and you know all sorts of different prospect talent which is which is great because you know you have a bunch of competition every day but I mean it's definitely it's definitely awesome when, you know, they think you've earned your shot and they give it to you. Kyle, the um, to go from, you know, Class A to Double A in one season is going to be a big jump for anybody. But I feel like for, for pitchers especially, the adjustments that you have to make at each level, um, when you're a hitter, you get to get in there and you get to see it every day. And I don't want to say that the adjustments are by any means easier, that you can make them any faster. But the exposure being out there day in and day out would help a little bit, I would think. But being a starter, what were the biggest things you noticed when you went from Rome to Florida and Florida to Mississippi? What what adjustments do you have to make climbing those levels? Um, not necessarily in, in short order. I mean, you had 14 starts in that, in that middle stop at florida um but what what were the biggest differences between those levels i would say just the hitters approaches um you know you can get away with a lot more at the lower levels i feel like and you know that was something that they had kind of emphasized is as you get older you've got more experienced guys that have you know it's not their first time in double a you know and there's some guys that had maybe had a little bit of show time that are still in double a stuff like that and so you're facing you know, top-notch guys who who know what they're trying to do at the plate, and I think that just comes with some experience. And so, you definitely have to one be you know more precise with your pitches, your pitch selection, and and where you're trying to throw it. But 
for the most part, it's it, it it seems like a huge jump, but it's something that once you get there, like for me, it was like throwing like change ups and curveballs behind in the count, and it's something that you just don't have to do at the lower levels because you can just keep throwing fastballs and then hopefully somebody puts it in play, you know, and get, and gets out that way. But I feel like once you kind of get to the point where you have to start doing that, it becomes a lot easier, and then you kind of unlock a little bit of potential that you didn't know you had. Here's a question that's not related to the the on-field baseball element of it, but you go from the GCL Braves in 2016, Danville Braves in 2017, Rome Braves in 2018, Mississippi Braves in 2018. In between those, you got to be a fire frog for 14 starts. How cool cool was that? It was nice. I mean, it's it's great having your – you know, your, your big league team own all the affiliates because, you know, you're getting top-notch equipment and all that stuff because they're the ones supplying it and paying for it. But, you know, the Firefox, it was, it was definitely an experience to say the least. But, I mean, the Florida State League is kind of tough, especially in those middle months of the summer. It gets kind of hot and humid. But, you know, I had, I had a, a lot of good friends with me, so we kind of grinded through that together. It was really fun. There you go. Well, one reason we wanted to bring you on this week, uh, and you touched a little bit on it before, was your experience this offseason with Driveline. I mean, I I think that's all over social media lately. You've posted about it on Instagram. Trevor Bauer has posted about it on Twitter. Kind of the group you guys have there in Seattle uh, working with Driveline. First off, I feel like a lot of our listeners are going to be uninitiated for with what driveline is uh so kind of explain that to folks what the philosophies behind that workout regime are and you know what are you kind of picking up this offseason you know during that work with Forrest Whitley Trevor Bauer Nate Pearson I know is somebody you've worked out with those are all big velocity guys um what what has that been like this offseason it's been great so I actually met Trevor for the first time when we got out here so we're just out here for the week we got here Sunday and we'll and we'll train until Saturday and then we'll head back home but um, you know, for me, it, it's, it, it's great, but I mean, the philosophies behind it are, you know, using overweighted and underweighted implements to essentially train your body to move more efficiently with the heavier weights. Um, cause obviously to, to move something that's, that's overweighted, you have to be as efficient as possible. And then by using underweights, you train your body to move faster. And so that's kind of the gist of it, but I mean, they have so much technology out here it's ridiculous they put like sensors on you and you'll you know you'll throw a couple pitches and they'll look at the biomechanics the way your body moves and and they can explain it to where you know somebody who has no background in it can understand it learning like hey this is how you can take stress off your arm this is how you can you know apply more force more efficiently and stuff like that and so that's that along with like their their slow motion cameras and rapsodo technology that they use you know you can use um like try to make the, your pitches the most efficient as possible. And so like just the technology they have out here is, is ridiculous. And so that's kind of the thing that drew all of us out here, which is, which is really cool. Yeah. And pivoting off of that, um, I saw a video of you the other day, I think it was 98 miles an hour or something like that was shared when you were throwing to live batters. Uh, what's one benefit you feel like you've personally got out of it? What's one adjustment you've made this off season or something you're going to carry with you you know, to Orlando this spring um, that just in this week span you've already picked up? So it was really – I, I kind of went over the, the, the biomechanics part of it today, and it was – I move I move well. Like, my my mechanics are decent, but there's definitely a lot of room for improvement and getting some more, like, scap loads, some more counter-rotation, 
you know, hip shoulder separation, stuff like that. And so little drills that you can do through throwing the weighted balls, that up rather than, you know, saying, hey, put your arm right here and do this. You kind of do a drill and, and stay athletic. And that was the biggest thing for me was, like I kind of said earlier in 2017, I was so just, you know, domed up with, you know, how, how my body's supposed to move and, and trying to put stuff in certain places rather than doing an athletic movement and just having it correct itself. And so that, that for me is been the biggest thing is is still building on trying to have an explosive athletic delivery and, and try and make it as efficient as possible yeah and, and we kind of touched off on this off air a little bit but um you know how do you get involved in this program i, I think it is kind of catching up and i think most casual fans maybe have at least heard of driveline now um but with so many pitchers getting involved so many big time pitchers especially you young guys who are either on the cusp of the majors or going to be there very soon or already there in, in Trevor Bauer's case. Um, you know, how do you get involved in this program and how wide have you seen it spread uh, since you got involved? Uh, to get involved, I mean, all you got to do is call and schedule an assessment, buy your flight and then have a place to stay when you're out here. I mean, it's, it, it's not very, uh, that's it. I'm going to you know, do it now. <laughs> yeah. I'm going out there. You should sign up. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it, it seems like this exclusive thing, but I mean, it's, it's the the real thing is it's out in Seattle. So, I mean, for a lot of people that's kind of out of the way, but, um, you know, if, if you take the time and, and invest in yourself to, to go out here and get some of the, the best training you can possibly get, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely worth it. And I think that's why it kind of seems like such a small group is because only a certain amount of people are, are willing to make that, you know, that whole cross country travel to, to go train, you know? So I think that's, that's part of it. And then the reason, you know, so many people start doing it and the reason it's expanding so much is just because their knowledge on, on kind of the way the, the the body moves and the pitching delivery as well as, you know, pitch shaping and pitch sequencing and and doing like all the stuff with the Rapsodo and slow motion cameras and pitch design is is just, you know, light years ahead of, of, most, of most other places, you know. So like to get that type of information from pretty much the people who, it seems like started it um, is, is pretty invaluable because I mean that's that's the way the game's going now. It would be pretty cool to uh, be the uh, the out of shape thirty three year old former college club ball player who goes to driveline and writes up the experience. When I start throwing seventy eight, you guys are going to take notes. <laughs> Don't you worry. Hey, yeah, no, they, they, they take anybody. So just come sign up, get out here. Yeah, Kyle. The uh, to be part of this generation now of uh, of pitchers, where you've got so many resources like this at your disposal. There's Driveline. There's um, Rob Freeman, the pitching ninja on Twitter and Instagram, has released the the Flat Ground app, which is uh, kind of taking the the baseball world by storm. It's uh, you know sort of a an app that can develop ball players, trying to make sure that that players with talent don't fall through the cracks. Um, there are so many things out there now for pitchers especially, that can develop you into a guy that maybe 15 years ago you wouldn't have been as a pitcher. How exciting is that to be in this era, and especially for you to be in an organization where you're surrounded by so much pitching talent? Um, that's got to be really cool. I mean, if you were you know, drafted in, uh, in even 2006 compared to 2016, it's an entirely different landscape than what it is now. 100%. And I, I mean, I love it. I think it's incredible, you know, kind of – the way things going, and you know the workouts and the throwing programs and all that stuff. But the best part about like the stuff you said on on Twitter and and YouTube and all that's it's free. Like you you don't yeah. have to pay anything, you know. So like you can you can go and 
if you just dedicate some time and, and do some research and some reading and stuff, like you can learn so much more than you would have, you know, back in the day because they just didn't have articles published and people weren't sharing their information. You know, it was all by word of mouth. But now you can you can just Google something and that one thing that you read could could be what clicks for you. That is pretty cool stuff. So tell me about the uh, the remainder of this offseason then. You, you'll leave there this week. Um, you really don't have a, a ton of time before um, you guys report for, for pitchers and catchers and, and all your spring work. What do the next couple weeks look like to get everything ready to go down to Florida? So I, we'll get back probably Sunday. Then I'll have, I think I'll have two and a half weeks. And I'll, I think I fly out the 14th for, for minicamp. So, you know, those, those two and a half weeks just start throwing some bullpens and and you know, trying to get all my my offseason pitches dialed in, and then you know, get get ready to show up and show out in spring training. That's pretty awesome, Kyle. We'll uh, enjoy the rest of the time in Seattle. Kyle Muller is the 12th ranked prospect in the Atlanta Braves organization. You can find him on Twitter at Kyle Muller 19. And uh, thanks for giving us some time, man. Have fun uh, the rest of the way with Driveline, and uh, we'll see you out there in the spring. All right, sounds good. Thanks, guys. One of my favorite leads from a Benjamin Hill story ever came up uh, just today. We're recording this on uh, January 24th. The lead is fantastic, and Ben joins us, and I'm going to read it to you in a second. Hello, Ben. Hello, Tyler, and uh, hello, Sam Dykstra, sitting to my left. Okay, here it is. (laughs) Quote, turtles can be found on land and at sea in Daytona Beach, Florida. They're now in the air. That is, I love that. Oh, uh, thank the you. Daytona Tortugas have a plane now. Not for them. Like, they're not going to be flying around in it. But there's uh, an airline, Silver Airways, uh, which now has a uh, a Saab 340 turboprop plane. Two things about that. One, did not know Saab was still in existence. Two, had no idea Saab made planes. Um, but Tortuga 1 now provides daily commercial flights between Daytona Beach and Fort Lauderdale. This is a first. We've had no minor league team branded planes before. You sometimes see, you know, there's uh, there's college teams, um, you know, professional sports teams obviously have their own charters that have logos on them sometimes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but a minor league baseball team now on a plane. This is cool. Yeah, I mean, that's why I chose to write a story about it. You know, um, there's obviously a lot of different um, aspects of minor league baseball that fall under my larger purview. I don't really write about partnerships or sponsorships very often. Um, You know, I let the teams take care of that and kind of tout their, you know, their their synergy and the the different relationships they have with brands. It's not something I really get into much. But this one, yeah, struck me because I was like, I'm always looking for firsts. You know, when I write a story, often it's because, wow, I've never seen a team do this before. And so to have a commercial jet branded with a minor league team logo, I thought was pretty cool. Um, yeah, so it's Silver Airways, a very small carrier, or not very small, but a pretty small carrier, uh, mostly Florida, ba- based in Florida, and most of their routes are in-state Florida routes. Uh, so pretty small uh, flights distance wise and then in, in aircraft as well. And so Daytona beach international airport DBA, if you're keeping score at home, um, or is it DBA? Oh man. I said, if you're keeping score at home and I messed up the airport abbreviation (laughs) anyway, Daytona beach international airport, um, JetBlue pulled out. DAB. Uh, DAB. Thank you. DAB. Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood is FLL. FLL, yes, yes. Um, so the airline, Silver Airways, is based at FLL, and they were moving into DAB, Daytona Beach, for the first time uh, after JetBlue pulled out. And, um, you know, when they were in discussions with the the airport itself about potentially being an airline that starts servicing uh, Daytona Beach, um, the executives there said to the airport, 
you know, we want to be on board with the Daytona Tortugas. And, um, you know, that right there is pretty unique. You know, if you're interested, if you worked in a front office before, most of the time you're hustling to create these relationships. And a lot of times you're under the radar and you're dealing with people who are like, wait, who are you? What are you a professional team? You know, all this, that's not always the case, but you hear stories about that a lot. So to have a company be like, Oh, if we're coming in here, we need the minor league team. Um, but I found it interesting in quotes from uh, both uh, Ryan Kier, whose name I always mispronounce, Kerr, K-E-U-R. I've talked to him so many times. Uh, Daytona Tortuga's president and uh, Steve Rossum, the CEO of uh, Silver Airways. You know, they were both saying si- similar things, you know, like – we are small, you know, we are a small business that kind of has to do things creatively to make a buzz. So I think they just saw this immediate kinship uh, between the airline and the type of airline they were and the type of team that the Tortugas were. So then, you know, if you're creative and trying to create a buzz on a small budget, uh, it eventually led to the idea of having a wrapped airplane, uh, meaning an airplane with the decals, uh, you know, of the Tortugas. So when you have a wrapped plane, it kind of looks like it's painted, but it's essentially, um, just a, a lot of vinyl big decals all over the uh, all over the plane. Silver Airways did it completely in-house. But now every day between Daytona and Fort Lauderdale and back, um, there's a commercial jet, Tortuga One, you know, flying. And sometimes it goes to Key West in the Bahamas as well. Um, so I just thought that was a really cool idea and then just thought, like, this is the way we see in minor league baseball, a copycat industry, I mean, in a good way, uh, we'll probably start to see other teams saying, hey, like we never thought about that before. And uh, and just in writing the story, I just learned about a world I hadn't really explored before, airports and airlines and the sort of, you know, negotiations that go on there, you know, airlines going in the different airports, the relationship of teams to airports as a partner in and of itself before the relationship with the airline even begins, and et cetera, et cetera. So Tortuga One is in the skies and uh, be curious to to see where this develops uh, in the future if we're going to be seeing, you know, uh, team brands flying all over all over America. We'll, we'll see. Obviously, it's the sort of partnership that's going to generally happen at a smaller level, but these are commercial planes and, uh, you know, every day making uh, – you know, four different flights to from Daytona or three. I get wait from Daytona Beach to Fort Lauderdale. I guess that's two, and then Fort yeah. Lauderdale back to Daytona. Sometimes more than that with uh, going to Key West and back as well from Fort Lauderdale. But anyway, thought it was a good story. Uh, interesting partnership, and uh, there you have it. Yeah, One thing that was really cool, just real quick to jump in, Steve Rossum, the CEO of Silver Airways, gave this quote. Quote, I think association with a minor league baseball team makes sense. A lot of pilots come to Silver Airways, work four or five years, and then go to United or Delta. It's almost like we're double A, part of a natural career progression, which is so cool. Yeah, it was kind of fun. It made me want to learn more about the airline industry because uh, uh, you just don't think about you know what a huge world it is. Yeah, you don't really think is. about it in that context. Right. Yeah, so it's a wrapped plane, vinyl decals. Well, I mean, that kind of transitions into what I was going to ask, which was you kind of mentioned this, you know, the the airline reached out to the team first, which is not normally how that works. Um, But in your discussions with the CEO, you know, why did they do that? I mean, did they just see Daytona Tortugas as such a fixture of the Daytona Beach area that they thought what's an obvious way we can do this? Or like why Daytona Beach, you know, why not like – Daytona Speedway or something like that. Put that on there. Well, I think one being a smaller airline, um, the Speedway is such a 
you know, exponentially larger entity that they probably didn't right. think they had, uh, you know, the requisite clout to have a partnership like that where they have Speedway and then that probably ties into NASCAR. And I just didn't, didn't think they were big enough. But, you know, the airline had never been in Daytona Beach before. So I think they uh, figured in terms of Daytona Beach proper, a recognizable brand. And it's become a lot more recognizable since the team switched from the Cubs name to the Tortugas and has a great logo by uh, Studio Simon. Um, they just thought, like, this is something that we can immediately – you know, brand ourselves with to tie us into Daytona Beach specifically because we'd never been in Daytona before. And also as a way to kick off a new route, there had previously been no Daytona Beach to Fort Lauderdale flights. So kind of saying like, this is something totally new. One, us in this airport at all. And two, this specific route we're doing every day to Fort Lauderdale. There had actually never been um, a southbound flight from, or maybe not never, but it had been years and years and years since there had been a southbound flight from, uh, uh, Daytona, at least domestically. And what I think they should do next is they should have a uh, a flight from Daytona to Chattanooga, literally just like flying players. What, I, uh, I, I, uh, I know it's super local. A, I get yeah, it. Yeah. I, that would just be super cool from our point of view as baseball writers. I thought you were saying it would be like the Tortuga to Chattanooga. That would be like the. I just thought it was a ride. Oh, the Tortuga to Chattanooga. Okay. It sounds good, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you could think of that. Or they could go to Dayton. I mean, either one. Like yeah. transporting players all over the place, like that. You know. And yeah, then, how about a series of private jet private jet routes throughout minor league baseball that involve uh, only going to the cities in one specific team's farm system. I'm sure Somebody get all... our good ideas board out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the Chattanooga Lookouts can sponsor a train. It's the Chattanooga Choo Choo. Oh, okay. Um, all of my jokes are from 1934. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the uh, the uh, one of the stories that you uh, got up on this, it was actually on the blog. They got a lot of, of uh, traction and conversation, and uh, it was a really cool story. You put up a, a piece on uh, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. Of as we know, Ben has now been to every single active minor league ballpark um, in existence right now. He's also been to a bunch of ballparks that are no longer active, and there are now 16 of those. And Ben put a blog post up um, on the site about the uh, the parks that are no longer hosting minor league baseball and what they're doing now and um, if they're still around, uh, all that type of stuff. This is pretty cool how much this got people uh, kind of interested in this story. Yeah, you know, as you do a job like this, you learn what gets people talking. Uh, you, as you guys know, logos and team names always gets people talking. But defunct uh, stadiums in general, and especially when you're ranking them, that gets people talking. But people really like the topic I've found of defunct ballparks, minor league ballparks um, that may be still in use but are no longer hosting minor league teams. So this post I put up last week, um, a lot of it is you know taking material from a previous post I wrote and tweaking it a little bit. Um, but then adding the three stadiums that became defunct in 28 after the 2018 season. You know, uh, R.I.P. Kendrick Legion Field in Helena, um, Cashman Field, home of Las Vegas, uh, the Las Vegas 51s. You know, there's going to be a new ballpark in Las Vegas. Um, in terms of Helena, that team relocated to Colorado Springs. They're going to be the vibe. And then the weirdest of all the defunct minor league stadiums, yeah. Jim Perry Stadium, home of the Bowie's Creek Astros. Never forget. Let's fast forward. Or let's pretend it's 20 years from now and there's just going to be this kind of like it'll just hit all our brains every once in a while. Like there was once a minor league team in Bowie's Creek, <laughs> you know, playing at a college stadium. So Jim Perry Stadium was never intended to be a minor league stadium. But as um, 
there were, you know, it, it was one of the teams uh, that contracted from the California League to the uh, Carolina League after the 2016 season. Um, there was a plan for a team in Fayetteville, which is now a Fayetteville ballpark hosting the Woodpeckers is going to open in 2019. But the Astros, who own that team, needed a you know placeholder for two years while this ballpark in Fayetteville was being built. So never forget the Bowie's Creek Astros, who uh, played at Jim Perry Stadium on the campus of um, – Campbell, Campbell University. University. Yeah, the Fighting oh, the Campbells. Fighting Camels. One of my a, favorite yeah, mascot fantastic. university pairings. Yeah, and and, you know, and I got to visit in 2017, which was the first year of the Bowie's Creek Astros and also the penultimate year. And, um, you know, there's a big uh, camel statue on, on campus. And it was just like such a surreal – uh, Did you so learn what the reason is behind camels as the as the mascot? I'm, I'm, I can only guess because it's Campbell University, and that sounds a lot like camel. Let's you see. Know? I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up. I'm gonna but do it, some some show production as we. Because if you say talk. Campbell, you're almost you're almost saying Campbell Camel. That's yeah. true. Well, the, yeah, that the true. first thing you think of is soup, and they're just, they're not gonna incorporate soup. No, you can't be a brand, you can't brand your uh, institution of higher learning. Like that. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, before 1930, this is according to Wikipedia, so you know it's true. Before 1934, Campbell's athletic teams were known as the Hornets, which makes a little more sense. Uh, the origin of the name Fighting Camels, popularly believed to be derived from a statement by early school patron Zachary Taylor Kivett, who approached school founder James Archibald Camel after a fire had destroyed three then-existing school buildings in 1900 and said, quote, your name's Campbell, then get a hump on you, we've got work to do. Campbell thought Kivett said, you're a camel, then get a hump on you. That's the dumbest story. Well, let's assume that back then, get a hump on you was just a, like what? That's, something that, you said in a totally and then, different... And then that guy also said, why don't I get a sponsored train in Chattanooga and call it the Choo Choo? I was yeah. going to say, you're the one talking <laughs> about 1934 exactly. jokes yeah. here, Mon. Well, you can't anyway. judge <laughs> Yeah, this is right up your alley there. Man. This is, uh, so there you go. So those <laughs> are the three... I, story. Yeah. So, out of these sixteen, then out of the three you just mentioned and the other thirteen you present in the story, which one do you miss the most? I guess is the question on that. That's a good question. Or do you wish was still in existence? That's a good question. Um, You know, most of these I just visited once, maybe twice. So there's not a lot that I have like deep rooted memories myself. Um, I often. You know, even though I'm going professionally as a fan, I just think of places I would have loved to go to. And I'm kind of, you know, a weirdo who likes the smaller beat up places in a lot of ways. I, I romanticize them. So, I mean, should there still be baseball at Sam Lynn Ballpark in Bakersfield? Um, you know, from a practical perspective, no. But like, <laughs> but I miss Sam Lynn Ballpark. I wish I could have gone there more times. There was a really quirky energy there I liked. Uh, same thing with uh, Helena, who just finished the season. You know, wooden grandstand, mountains in the backdrop. Um, you know, a treacherous uh, press box on the roof where you went up these narrow, creaking staircases and passageways. Um, you can see why it's no longer hosting minor league baseball, but it still makes me sad from a fan perspective uh, to not have those sort of experiences. And, uh, you know, I asked Sam this the other day and putting all this all together, I realized, okay, well, these are the 16 defunct ballparks I've never been to, but I realized I've never included two ballparks as part of my total, which um, maybe, and, and how to classify them because I saw games in two ballparks at ballparks that were defunct at the time, but they were hosting special regular season real minor league ba- games. Oh. 
uh, Rickwood Field, Bur- you know, the Rickwood Classic every year. Uh, they host one Birmingham Barons game at that classic ballpark. And uh, also Holman Stadium on the complex, uh, as part of the Dodgertown Complex, where they now have done a uh, annual Jackie Robinson game um, on April 15th. And I saw a game there a couple years ago. And I don't know how to classify that or how to add it to my totals. So if you have any, should it go on this defunct ballpark list that I visited? Should I include it as part of my larger total? Uh, I need help. This is very complicated. Well, one thing we should also add, too, before we move on to another subject is we're talking about them as defunct in terms of no longer being involved in minor league baseball. But as you note in some of these, they're still standing. I mean, these places, you can still go see games if you really want to. And I even changed the... Still stay in my newer write-ups. I change it from still standing to still in use because almost all these ballparks are still in use in some way, shape, or form. Not all of them, but they're just not hosting minor league baseball. Um, you see summer collegiate quite a lot of the time. You know, coming into old ballparks um, that that minor league baseball is no longer using. You see in indie teams sometimes, like in the case of Kendrick Legion Field, it's just going to be used by the local American Legion in Helena. Um, which I like that idea a lot, by the way. Yeah. It's like giving it back to the community and having these kids being able to play in a minor league park. Yeah, but although I, I read up on it on local media, there was a uh, you know overflow town hall or you know city hall meeting about what to do with the ballpark because a summer collegiate um, team wanted to come in in the Expedition League, I believe. And um, they voted, nah, let's just keep it for at least two years, just American Legion. So, and that's something that these municipalities or whoever owns the ballpark have to deal with when the team leaves. Is is this still an ent- a viable entity that they can get positive use for our town when the minor league team is no longer there? And um, I think in often cases it is, especially if you're talking uh, summer collegiate, uh, local high school, American Legion. Uh, you hate to see these places disappear. And if there is room in the budget to you know keep it up, Maybe not at a professional grade level. You no longer have to worry about waivers and and uh, you know all the things that come in with hosting a minor league team. But hopefully, you can still have baseball there. There's still great places to visit. What um, among the the ballparks that are listed here? Um, which one? This might be kind of a difficult question to answer, but which one do you think has the most interesting future ahead of it? Um, my favorite line through the whole thing is, nothing can kill Sam Lynn Ballpark, about the uh, the former home of the Bakersfield Blaze. Um, but, for example, in uh, in Nashville, Greer Stadium was supposed to be um, redeveloped into uh, new plans. Uh, the land was supposed to be used for something else. Those were um, stopped by a lawsuit, I believe. There's some crazy pictures of that ballpark now. It's all overgrown and, and post-apocalyptic looking. Um the uh, I, there are just so many different ways that so many of these things can go. Um, you know, high desert. I know it's hosting a, an independent league park or an independent league team right now. But like, what do you do with a ballpark there that never really seemed like it took off the way people expected it to? What do you think is the the weirdest or the most unique or the most interesting future for one of these? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the two you mentioned in California, the the, the defunct high desert in Bakersfield, are, are interesting because they uh, they're very different ballparks, but they are both very run down. But you don't want to just demolish it and have nothing. It's better to have something than nothing. Uh, then you have interesting cases like Rosenblatt in Omaha, which was largely tor- torn down, and the Omaha Zoo came in. But there's a infield at the zoo exhibit that that incorporates some of the uh, some of the field and some of the seats. Um, so it is interesting. I'm not sure of one right now that is just completely like, what are we going to do? You mentioned Greer. That's one of them. I wouldn't be surprised if that one's totally torn down at some point along the way. But um, I think a lot of these are just going to develop through the years and we don't really know where it's going to go. 
So that story is up on the uh, the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. And um, we have uh, one more item. Uh, the Altoona Curve, AA affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates, announced a, uh, a promotion that for select home games this season, they will be known as the Yinzers. Uh, Yinzer is a term that refers to people for or yins i guess is a, a term that refers to people from uh from pittsburgh instead of saying like y'all people from pittsburgh say yins like yins going to the store um because they're weird and uh the the curve announced uniforms and a logo and all that kind of stuff this seems like it could very much be the next thing that teams do we've seen the the food trend take off um there's this hyper locality now i think that goes along with minor league promotions does it seem like something that that other teams are going to start picking off yeah sam and i were talking about that yeah yins is yeah as you said tyler initially a way to say y'all in pittsburgh and you know i went to the university of pittsburgh and became familiar with the use of the word yins and, and at you know yins going to the store and at that kind of thing um <laughs> what's that it, 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 the, even here and yeah, I see it. I, I, I still don't know what that means. It's and just that. Yeah, it's like and that. It's just sort of like and that. Yeah, and man. what all? Yeah, what, what all? Like you, you doing like this and that? Like you? Yeah, you gonna go to a bar later and drinking that? Like you might drink, you might do <laughs> other things, but like you know, I don't know. Um, it's just one of those uh, colloquial uh, regional things. And uh, so from the term, from the use of the word yins, then Pittsburghers or at least a certain subset of Pittsburghers started being called Yinzers and, uh, you know, has been really embraced by, you know, Yinzers themselves to self-identify as a Yinzer. Uh, and hence, you know, the Altoona Curve deciding to call themselves the Yinzers uh, for seven uh, home weekend home games this season. And, uh, yeah, Sam and I were talking about in the office and thinking, yeah, we've talked so much about uh, how hyper-local a lot of these theme night gets theme nights get and how many of them are based on food right but how many are something like yinzer like what people call themselves in a region or what people are called you know the ones i was kind of coming up with would be you know maybe just terms that are seen as too insulting (laughs) to actually uh you know for people to self-identify so i think that's a good question if you're listening uh, what are some areas of the country that that, that would be similar to you know the yinzers in altoona uh you know their pirates affiliate but what what areas of the country could you have something like this? Because I feel like it is definitely getting uh, other teams thinking. But I can't think of one where the you know the self identification is key because the fans have to respond positively and not right. be like, this is an outrage. We find this term insulting, or this is what people from out of town call us, or whatever the case may be. So I can't come up with any like real good ones. But I feel I feel like Pittsburgh is great too because the vast majority of people I think outside of Pittsburgh don't know that. So you hear, so it's like your own unique thing. I don't think people just hear yins and think like, oh yeah, that's what people in Pittsburgh do. Like that's a very, uh, very localized colloquialism. So that's like the perfect way to do it. So maybe there's other ones that we don't even, I wasn't aware of that before I moved to Pennsylvania. I'd never heard of yins. So I think uh, there's a chance that maybe there's like a lot of these that we've never. Yeah. I was going to ask you aware of Tyler for like Colorado. Cause I don't know of any Coloradoism other than yeah. Coors. Hashtag Coors. Hashtag Coors. Um, um, that, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, actually. I, I mean, don't think, like, I don't know. Maybe we just do one, like, very... Transplants? Grammatically. Yeah, that that would probably be the most fitting. But maybe we just do one that's just, like, very blandishly correct, like, you guys. <laughs> or you people. 
uh, but not in a not in a pejorative way. Um, so anyway, if uh, if you know of these uh, from other regions around the country, let us know. Um, get in touch with the show, uh, and you can tweet at Ben. He is at Ben's uh, at Ben's Biz, and the blog is Ben'sBiz.mlblogs.com. And uh, what else we got going on? What else you got coming up? Uh, man, we've covered what the, the basics. Uh, I've got a blog post right now. I mean, you guys uh, have talked about the Hall of Fame, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided to put together a blog post about, you know, on the defunct tip to kind of like go into a little more detail on uh, the nature of some of the defunct teams that these guys have played for. Oh, cool. Not their personal experiences. I mean, mentioning a little, but uh, more so just like, huh, you know, Edgar Martinez started his career with the Bellingham Mariners. Who were they? And then he got promoted to the Wausau Timbers. You know, who were they? And uh, the Calgary Cannons. You know, you spent a lot of time with the Calgary Cannons. Too. Yeah, and those kind of teams. So uh, I'm working on that right now, and uh, got a few ideas for the next feature, but uh, nothing set in stone on that. And um, some archival stuff, trying to get like all my road trips together, uh, not just for this coming season, which I really haven't started, but uh, trying to make a master list of my actual itineraries every year, so I can really look back and uh, know where I was and when. So uh, hopefully, can have some fun with that too. Benjamin Hill, you can find on Twitter at Ben's Biz, and the blog is bensbiz.mlblogs.com, and uh, the story is up on the site right now about Tortuga One. So if you are uh, in the mood for a flight from Daytona to Fort Lauderdale, now you too can hop on a plane with a Daytona Tortuga on the side. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Tyler, and uh, thank you, Sam, sitting to my left. Still, we have not changed spaces, places. One of these days, <laughs> we're going to do that. Yeah. The stuff that we discuss with Ben when we get done recording interviews is so much more entertaining. <laughs> we had a we had a lengthy discussion about uh, how we all view our own mortality, basically. Yeah. After this one, <laughs> it does get dark. It really does. I think it we, does. I think we, it really does. Like pretty pretty instantly. Yeah, we teased that before. About, to be fair, I was the one who brought it up. Yes, it and but it went down this whole big rabbit hole about Family Feud got involved at one point. Yeah. Yeah, uh, European him, vacation got involved ways. at one point. It, it, it is a there's a deep dive into a lot of things that we're gonna have to save for some other podcast, not this one. And Sam said, if you contribute to our Patreon account, <laughs> um, we'll release the unedited trans the unedited audio. How about of uh, of our off air discussions with yes. Benjamin Hill? If you want to hear us get very that. dark about our own personal lives, there there it is. <laughs> It happens a lot. Um, so that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. Uh, we are less than a month from pitchers and catchers reporting. Um, we're starting to get things nailed down for spring training. It looks like I'm going to be in Arizona the third week in March, so the 17th-ish to the 22nd-ish. So if you're going to be down in the Cactus League in that stretch of time, um, hit me up. I'm on Twitter at Tyler Mon. Sam is going to be in Florida forever. Yeah. Uh, so hit Sam up too. Yeah, I will be in Mexico before that, and then I am flying to. to oh, excuse me. Yeah, to Florida. I'm going to Mexico for a wedding, not my own. I should get that out front. Um, <laughs> for a wedding. For a wedding, not my wedding, uh, and then flying straight to Florida. So I'll be there around the same time. You will be in Arizona, uh, maybe a little bit before Tyler, um, but that's around the time of year when minor leaguers are showing up to camp. Uh, yeah, we talk about pitchers and catchers reporting in a month, but. Um, you know, the minor leaguers don't get there for a little bit afterwards. So, uh, yeah, right when we get there is when a lot of minor leaguers will be there as well. Um, one thing you mentioned Mexico and that, uh, made me, um, think we should, we should drop this in as a, uh, a mention, 
the championship series is currently going on in the Mexican Pacific Winter League. Jalisco and Obregon are tied 1-1 after uh, a pair of games. Game three comes up today. Um, but a huge congratulations is in order to Estrellas Orientales, who uh, last night captured their first Dominican Winter League championship since 1968 by knocking off uh, Toros del Este. They play a best of nine championship series down there, um, and they took five of six to win their first title in 51 years behind Cincinnati Reds number 14 prospect Jose Siri, who batted nearly 600 for the championship series. Fernando Tatis Jr. Um, was fantastic throughout the playoffs. He was actually pretty quiet in the championship series, but uh, last night a shutout victory for nothing. So congratulations to the Eastern Stars snapping a 51-year title drought. Pretty cool. Very cool. Very cool. And the fact that prospects were involved only makes it better from our aspect pretty good stuff uh so that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show get in touch with this podcast at milb.com sam's on twitter at sam dykstra milb i am on twitter at tyler mon and uh for sam i'm tyler we'll talk to you next week okay Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.